Chapter 11, The Atheist Elder Kim Hall was straight from the LTM as green as grass. He picked him up at the bus station. Sam picked him up at the bus station. He was dark-haired and black-eyed. He stood half a full head shorter than Sam and was half his size. Elder Hall was smiling when Sam picked him up and started smiling when they arrived at their digs. Sam liked Elder Hall. He was so eager to please and willing to serve that Sam rejoiced inwardly. Where are you from, Elder Hall? Sam asked as they entered the small room. It's hard to say, Elder Hall replied blandly. Why is that? Many people know where they're from. Uh, Sam replied with a chuckle. It's like this. My current, my parents' current domicile is in San Jose, California. Well, my dad is actually my stepfather, but he's like a real father to me. My biological father, who is less of a father figure than my stepfather, currently lives in San Francisco with his wife, who is more like the sister I never had than a stepmom. I spent every other six months of the past 12 years in one of those, one or, uh, one or the other of those two places, so that I really don't know which one I owe the prestigious honor of calling my home. You see, it's difficult to say. I see what you mean, Sam said. How old are you? Why do you ask such an inconsequential question? Elder Hall asked. Just curious. You talk like a college professor, he replied as he unloaded pamphlets from his pockets. Would it cause a substantial shift in your opinion of me if I told you I was just 19? Uh, no. Sam answered, not sure if Elder Hall and he were from the same planet. I'm 19. Finally, a sentence with just two short words in it, Sam thought. Sorry, Elder Mahoy, I'm used to communicating on a substantially higher level than is usually considered con conversant in non-academic circles. Are you speaking English? Sam asked teasingly. Actually, no. I'm speaking Stanford. I'm quintessentially Californian and somewhat more expressive, though a little bit more verbose and snooty than village English. Some call it high English. As a joke... It's required of anyone in graduate school, and a bad habit, now I see. You're a graduate student at Stanford? Sam asked, amazed. I had hoped to avoid the subject, Elder Hall replied dejectedly. Well, you brought it up, why would you want to avoid it? It's cool. Because few people find me socially tolerant when they learn that I speak high English and am a graduate student at Stanford University, and I'm only 19 years old. I guess I've grown defensive over the years. You've grown... You've also grown vocabularyly abusive. There's no such word, Elder. I know, Sam admitted, but it was the only big word I could come up with on the fly. Elder Hall laughed so heartedly that Sam decided for sure that he liked him, and Elder Hall found Sam a welcome relief and gentle introduction to missionary work. Kim made a promise to himself to drop the high English and speak like everyone else. Sam was thinking along the same lines when he said, Tell you what, I know a perfect way to slow your English down to mere village English. Let's go through the discussions in Afrikaans. I was in Rhodesia for seven months, and they only spoke English there. It would be great, a good refresher for me. I don't know them in Afrikaans. They cut our stay in the LTM short because our visas came through early. I only learned through the second discussion in Afrikaans. In that case, why don't you study the third in Afrikaans while I fill out these district reports, okay? Sure, Elder Hall replied. He grabbed his book and curled up on his bed in what appeared to Sam to be an unusual, uh, no, a very uncomfortable position. Sam filled out the reports until his head spun. When he finally looked at the clock, he was startled to observe that three hours had passed and it was time for bed. He also noticed that Elder Hall was reading his scriptures. I thought you were going to work on the discussions, he said in a mild rebuke in his voice. Did it. Got it here. 
Elder Hall replied, tapping to his temple. You memorized the third? Sam asked in amazement. The third discussion was as long as the word of wisdom. Uh, well, was a long one on the word of wisdom and had taken Sam days to memorize. Not actually. What do you mean, not actually? I didn't just memorize the third. I memorized all of them. You what? <laughs> Sam exclaimed with disbelief in his voice. Elder Hall nodded curtly and went back to reading. Sam flipped open the book and thumbed to a random place in the fourth discussion. Give me the third concept of the fourth. Elder Hall rattled it off in Afrikaans word perfect. Sam corrected his pronunciation in several places. Sam turned to various places in the discussions and started to find that Elder Hall had spoken the truth. He knew them verbatim. How did you do that? Sam demanded. I have a small gift. I memorize easily. Actually, I read it once and basically I have it. I'll read it again tomorrow and it will stick forever. It's nothing. I've always been able to do it. Do you understand what you've memorized? Elder Hall looked up with a quizzical expression on his face. Ah, now there's the rub. I don't have a clue what it means. They're all just sounds to me. I would appreciate you going through them and giving me the translation. That would help immeasurably. Sam was more flabbergasted. Elder Hall had memorized the entire set of discussion in three hours in a foreign language without having a clue of what the words meant. As the weeks progressed, Elder Hall became more and more of an astonishment. He was studying medicine at Stanford. He was in second year with graduate school, had a 4.0 GPA, and was president of a fraternity. The fraternity he created and was president of was called the Anti-Protest Fraternity. They opposed anyone who opposed anything. He said it started as a joke, but became popular because it gave kids a chance to have a voice against the radical groups so prevalent on campus. If someone held a sit-in protest to rule out uh, a rule not allowing men and women to live in the same dorm, Elder Hall's group staged a protest to support the rule. In time, his group had had more members than any radical group on campus, and their protests drowned out the real protesters. He grew long hair, a scruffy beard, and wore Levi's and no, <laughs> wore beads and a torn Levi's. Because they looked their part, the real protesters were not offended by their anti-protesting. A Stanford University was delighted by the effect. They even offered to fund Kim's anti-protest fraternity. He published the scathing letter about demonstrations in the school paper, and then he held several anti-protest demonstrations himself. Equally as astonishing as uh, was that Elder Hall had been a member of the church just a little more than a year. One of the protests staged during the spring of 71 was against the building of a Mormon Institute of Religion on campus. His group had anti-protested in favor of the Mormons. Consequently, he met a few Mormons. One of them was a red-headed co-ed from San Diego. He described her as a glow-in-the-dark kind of Mormon. Sam supposed he meant that she radiated the spirit. Kim said that she radiated everything, happiness, virtue, beauty, and spirituality. His glowing description made Sam want to meet her, just to see if she was actually mortal. Her name was Olivia, and Kim had wanted to know what had made her glow in the dark. She told him, and he believed her. He investigated the church, read all, Sam wondered if he had memorized, the standard works, was baptized and proposed marriage to Olivia, all within three months' time. Olivia told him he she had her heads, oh, had her heart set on marrying a returned missionary. In reality, she was already engaged to a returned missionary. However, great as this disappointment was to him, the seed of being a missionary was planted, and Elder Hall patiently waited a year required between baptism and going on a mission. Sam had no concept of what it meant to be a district leader. 
Like every other missionary who wasn't one, he assumed it would be glorious, filled with exhilarating spiritual experiences and opportunities to superpower missionary work. The district leaders he had known were spiritual giants in his estimation, and he desired to be just like them. The reality of the situation was that being a district leader was a lot of work that had nothing to do with teaching. There were a lot of meetings, interviews, traveling between cities, solving problems, finding boarding houses, transferring elders, taking elders to doctor's appointments, and the paperwork. He hated the paperwork. It seemed futile and demanded time he would have preferred to spend teaching people. As the weeks turned into months, Sam slowly accepted the fact that he was no longer able to proselyte full-time. He did his job with as much energy as he could, but he continued to grow more disillusioned with the new position. He desperately missed teaching the people and yearned for the opportunity to bear testimony to the humble souls. Without time to track, they did not meet many people, and consequently, the only investigators Sam met when, uh, were when they worked with the other elders. Sam saw the remaining precious moments of his mission slipping through his fingers like fine sand. He mourned and wept inwardly. He didn't want to finish his mission this way. He felt locked in an administrative position, unable to meet the people to teach them. He felt useless and depressed. He felt that the more depressed he grew, the hotter the fire burned inside him until he seemed as if he might burst from the unresolved conflict. It was late at night and Elder Hall had long since slept, no, slipped into deep sleep. Sam knelt on the concrete floor beside his bed and tears of frustration slid down his cheeks. Oh, Father, how come I have come to this dark hour? How could I have accepted this job when I have no power to bless the people? Father, my soul is on fire. I desire every minute of every day to be teaching the people, but I cannot. I know the job as district leader is important. The other elders depend on me and look to me for encouragement. I know I did before I became the DL. I promised I would do anything you asked me to do. I have done that and will continue to do that with all my heart and soul. I most humbly apologize that I will not be baptizing anymore. He had to stop as tears flowed down his cheeks. Even the silent voice could not continue for the lump in his heart. Dearest Lord, I beg thee to forgive me. I cannot do missionary work. My heart yearns for. Forgive me. Forgive me. Still, Father, with what little I have left to give, I give it all, freely, completely. I beg thee to use me for what little I am worth, and allow me to complete my mission in righteousness. A heightening of spirit flowed into him, and he felt his heart and mind quicken. Father, I know thou lovest me, I feel it in my soul, and even though I have little to offer, I covenant with thee that I will be obedient to every command. From now until the end of my life, and throughout all eternity, I will obey thee and do thy will, and walk in the paths of righteous. As thou wilt reveal them to me, I confess my profound love for thee, and do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A feeling of warmth flooded over Sam like a flow of warm water. He felt the tiredness of his heart lift, and he suddenly felt like singing. He lifted his hand toward heaven and silently spoke the words that vibrated his... No, he lifted his head toward heaven and silently spoke the words that vibrated through his soul. They were more than language, more beautiful than poetry, and lovelier than angelic singing. They flowed from his soul in an unending symphony of love. So much honor and praise and glory came from his heart that he wept as he worshipped. He felt the earthly world roll back to reveal a powerful outpouring of love from the eternal realm. He lost track of time as his soul became immersed in praise, such as he had never considered possible. Hours later, he climbed into bed, his body cold and stiff, his soul burning with joy. He drifted off to sleep in the embrace of divine love and dreamed dreams of great services performed in God's service. 
When the alarm went off, Sam awoke with a warm burning in his bosom. Even though he slept less than three hours, he felt completely rested. His heart was buoyant with joy, almost giddy. Everything was sweetly perfect, and he rejoiced. Elder Hall took one look at him and covered his eyes with a forearm, as if shielding them from the sun. Glowing, he said in mock supplies. Glow in the dark, Elder, he exclaimed. Sam ignored his companion, along with a pile of reports waiting for him. They hurried from their apartment and drove to the tracting area. They did have a tracting area, even though this was the first time they'd actually gone to it in weeks. They picked a block of small homes and knocked on the first door. His heart thrilled as he waited for the door to open. Though not interested, the man behind the door hesitated and looked at them quizzingly. What you see is our testimony, Sam told him. The man gave him a puzzled look and slowly closed the door. Sam slid a Joseph Smith tract under the door. Each door was an exciting experience. Even those who slammed them did so after feeling something. Before they broke off for lunch, the elders had three appointments to teach. By the end of that day, they had taught a first discussion and five appointments, two for that evening. As they were walking back to the car, Elder Hall turned to Sam. What happened last night? I saw you stayed, by, uh, stayed on your knees after I went to bed. I awoke hours later and you were still there. What happened? Elder, I'm not sure, Sam confessed. I did pray long into the night. I've done that before, but this time was different. Something happened to me. I feel different. There's something different and wonderful inside me now. I have so much joy that I am feel that I'm going to burst. My bosom is burning so hotly that it would be painful if it didn't feel so wonderful. I don't understand it. It just is. Elder, when I first laid eyes on you this morning, I knew something had happened. You remember me calling you a glow-in-the-dark elder? Well, you were. I mean, you are. You have to tell me what you said, what you did last night. I want to do it too. I'm sorry, Elder. I really don't understand it myself. I've never seen such a transformation in a person. You speak differently. You bear testimony more powerfully. And you make suggestions instead of commanding. You are friendlier. You laugh more. Your prayers are sweet and loving. And you talk to everyone with patience and respect. Elder, if you don't tell me what you did, or at least how you did it, I'll be very disappointed. Well, I don't want to disappoint you, Sam laughed. I'll try, but it's, a sim it's not a simple story. I have two years, Elder Hall answered, and they both laughed. Sam began with Jimmy's death, with the lessons that that impressed into his mind. He taught Elder Hall how to distinguish the voice of the Holy Spirit and how critical it is to obey. He repeated several times, Obedience is the key to righteousness. Sam told Elder Hall about his experience in Rhodesia, about the train wreck and having saved people's lives by listening and having courage to obey. He described as nearly as he could his mighty prayer the night before. He spoke of the feelings of worthlessness and believing that he had nothing more to offer, and yet covenanting to obey and serve with all his soul. For the rest of his life, he explained that immediately after he told the Lord these things, he felt the powerful influence of the Holy Ghost flow over him. Elder Hall listened intently, asking only questions that brought out rich, inspiring answers. By the time he concluded, it was late in the night, and they were in bed. Elder... Kim said quietly, after a long silence, There is a scripture that describes your experience exactly. It's in Mosiah chapter 5. He sat up, pull, pulled on a pair of pants. It was July, the middle of winter, and even though those days were often in the 80s, it still dropped to the 40s at night, far too cool to be without clothing. Let me read verse 1. It describes the change you have experienced. And they all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words that thou hast spoken unto us, and also we know of a surety of the truth, because of the Spirit of the Lord Omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us, in our hearts, and we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Messiah 5.2 Does that fit your feelings? I mean, 
Having no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually, Elder Hall asked. It does, Sam replied. I've read that verse many times and it never occurred to me that I might be able to do the same thing as King Benjamin's people. I guess I have always considered it an experience unique to the ancients, not to an indication of what might happen to me. There's more. This is verse 5. And we are willing to enter into a covenant with our God to do his will and to be obedient to his commandments, and in all things he shall command us, all the remainder of our days. Mosiah 5.5 5. See, they made a covenant of obedience similar to what you described. Sam thought about this. It seemed like they were making the covenant after they experienced a mighty change, while in my case it preceded it. Not necessarily, Elder Hall replied after some thought. The next verse says that this covenant that they had already made. The gospel only works one way, Elder. If it worked this way for you, it's going to be the same for all people. I believe that's true as long as we are dealing with the fullness of the gospel. Sure, let me read verses 6 and 7. And now these are the words which King Benjamin desired of them. And therefore he had said unto them, Ye have spoken the words that I desired, and the covenant which ye have made is a righteous covenant. And now because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you, for ye say that your hearts are chained through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. Mosiah 5, 6-7 Oh my! Sam exclaimed. Elder Sam Mahoy, I believe you have been born again, in the fullest sense. Oh my, Sam repeated. There was a protracted silence while he tried to understand. Finally, Sam said, I just find it hard to believe something like this could actually happen to me. I'm nobody special. I just want to do what's right. I make mistakes, lots of them. I'm not perfect. I'm, in fact, I'm far from it. I find it hard to accept. Perhaps this is something else. Elder Hall persisted. I know I'm your junior companion, and you are my teacher in, in these things, but let me give you some spiritual counsel. Don't doubt the gifts of God. Don't let your humility interfere with your blessings. Accept it. Rejoice in it. It's true. You said you are nobody special. I tell you, you are a son of God in the purest respect, and that is very special. Sam took his companion's com counsel and rejoiced with all his soul. He recognized that no doubt... Uh, no, <laughs> that doubt is not a gift of the spirit, and when doubt is, when doubt in his rebirth came, he rejected it without exception. Each time he did, his soul rejoiced until he felt as if the blessings were too great for him to possess them all. Journal entry, June second, nineteen seventy-five. It is with great joy in my heart tonight that I record that I have recently experienced the rebirth. It was unexpected and far from my thoughts. I was completely depressed and felt as if I had failed the Lord. I thought I was going to go home, having been a failure as a missionary. It, it pained my heart to the point of death, and I felt down and begged the Lord to forgive me. While I was feeling so devastated, I still had this powerful desire to dedicate what was left of my soul to the Lord. I spent many hours in prayer and covenanted myself to absolute obedience. I... It was more than a promise. It was pure, profound, and absolute. Even though I was mostly worthless as a servant, I still wanted the Lord to have whatever I had left. A marvelous feeling then swept over me, and my depression evaporated as quickly as fog before the bright sun. This Holy Spirit enveloped me, and I felt unbridled joy so intense that it confused me. I have never experienced joy so profound. It was joy in the Lord, and his joy in me as his child. All rolled together, I was completely changed in that moment. I came away from the experience a different man. Since that time, I cannot think of sin without feeling repulsed. I look upon the world with different eyes. I, the things that previously excited me and I looked forward to with great hope no longer interest me. Money, a problem throughout my mission, has suddenly become meaningless. The only things that matter are people and my relationship with God. My heart is continually filled with prayer. 
Every waking moment is prayer, and I find myself rejoicing continuously. As soon as my heart turns to prayer, the Holy Ghost overflows me, and I am directed to speak like never before. My words flow like a mighty river that come forth in the, in more beauty than the loveliest music. It seems as if, at times, the words rhyme and have meter. When I am fully caught up in prayer, it becomes pure, almost praise, and my soul rejoices in it. When I thus pray under the influence of the Spirit, I seem to get everything I ask for. I feel absolute humility, having had a small portion of the perfections of God opened to my understanding. I am struck of the fact that He, the God of all existence, loves me. He actually loves me. Such unspeakable, beautiful words. He loves me. Tears come to my eyes to think of it. I am His Son. Think about it. He who is the most perfect, powerful, loving, kind, and holy being in the universe is my Heavenly Father. And his son is my loving savior, who has snatched me from the dredges of hell. Hell is what I earned, but he has given me heaven. For the first time in my life, I understand now how the gospel can bring us to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In a way too beautiful for mortal man to understand, through obedience we qualify for his grace, which brings his mighty change, this rebirth, this making of the soul, and then changes us to become like him. Not perfect yet, but more like him who is perfect. I have long believed that we had to become perfect largely through our, our own labors. We had to develop faith, humility, love, kindness, hope, charity, and all the Christ-like attributes. After we had done all of this, I believed that he would then apply his atonement and wash away our sins so that we would finally be like him. It all seemed so distant, so incredibly hard and remote, that even the most brave-hearted seeker would faint by the way. What I now understand from this experience is that the primary thing Heavenly Father wants us to learn in this life is obedience. Through our agency, we choose to forever obey, which triggers the Savior's grace and empowerment in our lives. The Spirit then purges our natural man, and we are born again, firm in our resolve to obey, and joyfully empowered by Christ to be submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, and flawlessly obedient. This grace-sustained obedience is the key that unlocks the door to righteousness and eternal bliss. Having at last the faith that leads to obedience, a key has been turned, and I now joyfully understand that the attributes of godliness are gifts of the Spirit. What a wonder it is to finally see clearly. It opens a thousand doors and brings the gospel into sharp focus. It makes it, makes it all things doable, unscrambles the scriptures, casts bright light upon the straight and narrow way, and illuminates the darkness of the world. In a tiny way, I now perceive the perfection of the plan of salvation. Every mortal born lives their lives surrounded by the voice of revelation, and all have an equal chance to hear and obey. To hear and obey is to be led along the path of righteousness until we experience a mighty change that makes us a new creatures in Christ, as Paul expressed it. Suddenly, Paul's words make sense, whereas before they were nonsensical to me. Paul understood the rebirth profoundly because his experience with it had been profound. With every letter he penned, he taught about the power of the change that had saved his soul from destruction. Oh, how I rejoice in these things and worship him whose plan this is. The elder's first appointment that day was with Mr. and Mrs. De Bruin. The De Bruins' home was small, yet tidy and clean. Mrs. De Bruin opened the door and smiled. She had, uh, she was a refined, dark-haired woman in her late thirties. Inside the door was a huge drafting table. 
that took up most of the foyer and part of the living room. On the table were immaculate drawings, drawn electrical drawings. Sam studied the drawings. He had taken drafting in high school, and these were professionally done. He was bending over the drawings when Mr. De Bruin came from the back of the house. Sam extended his hand. Good evening, I'm Elder Mahoy, and this is Elder Hall. <laughs> Akanama Kenis, pleasure to know you. Mr. De Bruin replied, switching to Afrikaans and shaking both their hands. Sam noticed Mr. De Bruin give her husband a quizzical look. He just smiled at her and turned his attention to the missionaries. It was considered rude to change the language being spoken. If someone started speaking English, it was socially correct to continue in that language. They had just spoken with Mrs. De Bruin in English. Sam knew they both probably spoke English as well as he did. He felt a momentary pain of panic. He hadn't had a conversation in Afrikaans in eight months, but he knew the same language somewhat and felt confident that the Holy Spirit would aid them. After polite conversation, Sam told them briefly about the apostasy and the restoration. He asked them if they would be interested in hearing more about the man who had been called as a prophet in this dispensation. They both expressed interest. Sam began the first discussion, and they went through the apostasy in detail. The De Bruins understood and agreed, and they told uh, he told them about Joseph Smith in the first vision. As soon as he mentioned the appearance of God to the boy prophet, Mr. De Bruin objected. He said no one had seen God and stood to retrieve his Bible. Sam could see that the Bible was very well worn and marked in many places. Mr. De Bruin turned to and read a verse that stated no man had seen God. Sam had not read the scriptures in Afrikaans, and it took him extra mental effort to translate the words into English. He recognized the verse and was about to reply when Mr. De Bruin launched off into another verse. From there, the conversation deteriorated into an argument, except that no one was participating in it except Mr. De Bruin. Sam grew restless as Mr. De Bruin expounded them with scriptures, not waiting for a reply or, in fact, not being interested in one. Wait, Sam shouted, just as Mr. De Bruin was about to thumb to another verse. The sheer volume of Sam's voice brought the conversation up short. He filled the silence by saying, I have sat here and listened to you attack my faith without allowing me to answer a single accusation. This is not the way Christ would have us do. You just read a scripture in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you just read a scripture in 1 Corinthians. Mr. De Bruin nodded and glanced back at his book. He had not given the reference and was impressed that Sam knew it. In reality, Sam could not remember reading that particular verse in either English or Afrikaans, but nevertheless, he knew the reference with great certainty. Read the two verses prior to the one you read, Sam directed. Mr. De Bruin did so. Sam had difficulty following the words, yet he knew through the Spirit what they said. As you see, those two verses show us that it actually is possible to see God. You are misinterpreting the scripture, Mr. De Bruin replied. One must consider each verse separately. Each is inspired and each bears in its uh, bears its own message. To apply the meaning of prior verses to warp uh, to apply the to warp the meaning of the next is to twist the scriptures. Each verse stands alone, he stated haughtily and with indignation. You say that God has called another prophet, I say that none is needed. We have the only holy book uh, no. We have the holy book of God, the Bible. It is all we need. He thumbed quickly to a verse and read, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. 
This he read with great emphasis, punctuating the words by stabbing his finger in the air. He had switched into high Afrikaans, which is only used for preaching sermons and powerful prayers. It was never used when speaking to another person, and was considered a great insult. So you see, you poor misguided Mormons, that salvation is in the scriptures. You don't need a prophet. Your whole argument is void. You have come to deliver a message that is false. Go back to America and quit wasting your time in ours. Sam remained calm. When Christ spoke these words, he was speaking to a highly educated man who refused to accept him as the Christ. They used exactly the same argument you just did. They said he had the scriptures, the law, and the prophets, and he had no need of a living prophet. That is not true, Mr. De Bruin insisted. Read the verse just prior to the one you quoted, Sam requested. He had no idea what the verse said, but the fire was burning in his bosom, and he knew the words he spoke were true. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he for whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Silence filled the small room after the reading. Sam let it linger for a few moments. Jesus was being sarcastic, Sam re- Oh, <laughs> I read that in the wrong voice. Jesus was being sarcastic, Sam replied. He was saying, search the scriptures all you want if you think they will save you, but they are they which testify of me, and if you don't accept me and those that I send you, you cannot find eternal life in the scriptures alone. How can you come unto Christ if you reject his prophets? Read the next verse, please. Mr. De Bruin slowly looked back at his scriptures, and after a pause he read, And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. Sam waited until the Spirit moved him. Mr. and Mrs. De Bruin, I want you to know that a prophet has been called anew in this era. His name was Joseph Smith. He was prophet in the same respect that Moses, Peter, and Isaiah were prophets. I want to bear you my testimony that the true and living church of God has been restored on the earth. All the blessings that were found in the ancient church are found today. I know you feel the burning in your soul, testifying that this is true. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Mr. De Bruin sat silent for almost a full minute. Finally, he closed his Bible and set it on a table beside his chair. His eyes studied each of the missionaries in turn before fixing upon Sam. For a moment, his face was aglow with wonder, but darkness began to seep across his face, and his brow furled into a frown. You two are dangerous, he finally said. You almost deceived me. Very clever. I will inform the pastor about you two, and we will see that you have no success teaching in this town. I will s- uh, also see to it that you two are miserable in every possible way. You take my words as true, and consider my words prophetic, for they shall surely come to pass. You are evil. Sam stood suddenly. Elder Hall followed, gathering up their things. Mr. De Bruin, he began, you have been given the true witness, and you felt the power of it. In all fairness, I want you to understand that you will be held accountable. Hold on there, Mr. De Bruin bellowed. Be careful what you say. Your words are being recorded in heaven and will echo in the halls of justice. Don't condemn me to hell unless you wish to go there yourself. He, this he nearly shouted. Sam lowered his voice and held his gaze. You, sir, will be called to account on the day of judgment for the testimony I have borne to you this day and which you know to be true. Good night. So saying, he walked solemnly to the door, opened it, and stepped out into the night. He was vaguely aware of Mr. De Bruin storming into the back of the house. His wife quietly closed the door behind them without a word. Sam stood on the porch for a long moment. Elder Hall stopped halfway down the walk and turned just in time to see Sam lift each foot and brush the dust off each soul. 
They climbed into their VW Beetle. Elder, Kim said as soon as the engine tied to life, I thought you didn't speak Afrikaans that well. Sam looked at him and shrugged. It hadn't occurred to him that he had spoken far beyond his abilities. Don't shrug this off. I just heard you speak for an hour, bearing testimony, quoting dozens of scriptures, answering difficult questions, and all of it in flawless Afrikaans. I know you don't speak it that well, and I know you haven't read the Bible in Afrikaans, yet you quoted those scriptures verbatim. You used words I doubt you ever heard before, and quoted scriptures you probably never heard before. Have you st studied the Old Testament? I've read at it, but I haven't gotten clear through it yet. Then how were you able to quote those scriptures from Isaiah? I did that? Sam asked, having difficulty remembering, now that the power of that spiritual moment was subsiding. His memory of what he had said was fading as well. It felt to him as if someone else had conducted that interview, and he had merely watched the event. He had vague memories of quoting scriptures and of answering questions, but his memories included statements he had made in Afrikaans, which even now he had difficulty understanding. You did, and how about those scriptures in Jude and in First John? Had you memorized those? They're not on the memorization list. No, I guess not. What about the scripture in John? Had you ever before considered what he meant when he said, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life? No, I had never really considered the meaning of that scripture. That's what I thought. I can hardly wait to get my hands on my journal tonight. They drove home in reverent silence all the way home. Sam turned off the car and put his hand on his companion's arm. Elder Hall, thanks. For what? he asked with a puzzled expression. For helping me to more clearly see the blessings of the Lord. I think I have taken many things for granted without rejoicing over them. Tonight was special, and I probably would have overlooked the sweetness of it without your comments. Thanks. Elder Hall closed his eyes and thought. When he opened them, they were moist. No, don't thank me. I was just a witness of tonight's miracle. I'm astounded that I actually followed the conversation. I'd heard hundreds of new words I'd never heard in my life and understood them perfectly. This is literally my first experience in actually hearing a complete conversation in Afrikaans. When he first started railing at us, I didn't understand a word he was saying. But as soon as you started speaking, I felt the Holy Ghost come over me, and I instantly understood every word. I tried several times to make comments, and even though I could understand perfectly, the words would not come to my tongue. I could not say... I could say nothing. It seems obvious that you had the gift of tongues tonight. I guess I had the gift of ears. They both chuckled. Then Elder Hall put his arm around his companion's shoulder. Elder Mahoy, we have much to be grateful for. We certainly do, my friend. At church that next Sunday, Bishop Van Hillen stopped them in the foyer. Elders, you have tracked out a family named Whitehall in the Sunnyside subdivision. Yes, Bishop, we've already given them the first discussion, Elder Hall replied. Good, very good. The wife is a friend and a co-worker of my wife. They have been friends for years. She has been anxious for the missionaries to meet them, but didn't want to directly refer them. When you see my wife, she has something to tell you about them. They had no trouble finding the bishop's wife. She was a happy, active woman who seemed to be the heart and soul of the ward. They found her sitting, setting up pictures in the Relief Society room. Her name is Judy, she told them as she motioned for them to sit down. She sat on the edge of the table before them. I have known and worked for her for years. She has always resisted my attempts to share the gospel with her. Elder Hall cleared his throat. We taught her the first discussion, and both she and her husband seemed interested, or at least polite. They did invite us back. 
Sister Van Halen clapped her hands together in joy. Oh, wonderful, she exclaimed. Just wonderful. She told me at work that some missionaries had knocked on her door, and she thought they were from my church. She also told me something else, and I'm not sure I should tell you. Why is that? Sam asked, his curiosity piqued. Well, I don't want it to influence your teaching or make you go too quickly. We will teach them as quickly as the Holy Spirit directs, Sister Van Halen, regardless of what you tell us, Sam assured her. Yes, of course, I'm sorry. It's just that I've been working with her for so many years now, you know. Sam smiled at her. We do understand, don't worry. We'll teach her as carefully as we can. What she chooses to do with it will depend on whether she gets a testimony, as you know. Well, that's what I wanted to tell you. She already has a testimony. Oh? Both elders said in unison. She told me at work and actually swore me to secrecy. She said that one evening, about a week before you tracked them out, both she and her husband had the same dream. She said she saw a sea of faces as if it were the entire world. They were wandering back and forth in her dream, without paying any attention to her. She felt lost and afraid. She could tell that some of the people were bad because darkness surrounded them. Some people were good because their faces were surrounded by light. She told me that one face in the crowd glowed brighter than all the others and was coming towards her. She watched anxiously to know who it was. Finally, it got close enough that she could distinguish the features, and it was a young man she had never seen before. And that moment, an in, at that moment, an authoritative voice told her, This is my true messenger. She knew it was the voice of God, and it frightened her. She was afraid she wouldn't find the person or recognize him. About a week later, you two knocked on the door, and she opened it with a determination to send you two packing. Imagine her surprise when one of your faces was the face in her dream. Sam glanced at Elder Hall, who looked back with raised eyebrows. They both wanted to ask which one of them she had seen, but neither did. She's... She said she was so amazed that she didn't even say hello, but just ran to get her husband. I remember that now, Sam interjected. I thought she was going after a gun or something. Instead, she brought her husband, who immediately invited us in. I thought it was strange at the time, but I was so glad to be able to reach them that I had forgotten about that. Sister Van Halen nodded. My point in telling you this is that you are understand how precious they are. Heavenly Father must really want them to accept the gospel. Aren't you curious which uh, of you she saw? I'd rather not know, Elder Hall replied, and Sam agreed. He would feel more comfortable not knowing. They had an appointment with the Whitehalls on Wednesday evening. They fasted and made spiritual preparations as they walked up the path to the Whitehalls' front door. Sam had a bad feeling. Elder, do you feel that? Sam asked in a hushed voice. I sure do. Something's blacked out inside. It was Elder Hall's way of saying that there was a negative spiritual feeling from the house. Sam and he had felt... It before and invariably ended up with them being asked not to return. Sister Whitehall opened the door and before they knocked and pushed open the screen door, she was solemnly and, and she was solemn and barely greeted them. It did not look good to Sam. She left to get Brother Whitehall. He came into the room with a young man about Sam's age. This is our son Neil. We invited him to come hear your message tonight. We hope that's all right. Certainly, Sam said cheerfully as he shook Neil's hand. It was like shaking the hand of a spiritual corpse. Darkness emanated from his eyes. This young man was one of the most completely evil people Sam had ever met. It caused his skin to crawl. Brother Whitehall, would you ask someone to pray? Sam asked. Neil coughed, chuckled de derisively, and half under his breath and said, To what? Elder Hall gave a nice, though brief, prayer, during which Neil snorted at every mention of God. Thank you for having us by this evening, Sam began, not sure how to approach the situation. He wanted to teach the Whitehalls, but knew Neil would not allow it. He prayed silently for the Holy Spirit to inspire his words. It's a pleasure to meet with you again. That's precious. Begin your teaching with a lie, Neil snorted. 
What do you mean? Sam asked. You lied. It's not a pleasure for you to have me here. You feel alienated from me because I represent the exact opposite of what you represent. You feel uncomfortable around me, and it's not a pleasure. Let's at least be honest. You claim to represent God. At least you can do it without lying. His voice was insulting and charged with hate. Sam was taken aback by his assault. He considered arguing that he was pleased to be with the Whitehalls tonight, and that was the truth, but he knew it would only derail their discussion. Truth, Sam began, is what we are here to discuss. Truth in its purest form, as God has revealed it. Another lie! Neil bellowed. God reveals nothing. There is no God. He turned to his father. Do you really expect me to sit here and listen to this tribe? He can't say one sentence without lying. They're like all the rest. They have this mindless fixation on a being that does not exist and the audacity to say that they are his spokesmen. They aren't even entertaining. At least I got a laugh at the stupid faces of the others. These guys are just congenial liars, Neil proclaimed. His father blanched and raised a hand as if to restrain his son, but Neil ignored him. Prove to me there's a god, he demanded, turning back to Sam. Prove to me there's not a god. Elder Hall interjected hotly. Sam knew the discussion had just gotten out of hand. There was really nothing else to lose, so he let Elder Hall trade logic with Neil for a while. Elder Hall had apparently conducted this argument with some intellectual atheist before and handled himself, handled himself well. Still, the spirit departed and nothing of worth was being taught. Neil certainly wasn't going to change his mind, no matter how sound the logic Elder Hall might bombard him with. Neil leaned forward and lowered his voice. Just this morning in the paper, it told a story of a little girl who was abducted, raped, and murdered. An innocent little girl. Tell me where God was while she was crying and screaming, begging for her life. While, where was God while she was being stabbed several times? Tell me. I'm really curious. Elder Hall sputtered, and Neil jumped down his throat with both feet. You can't explain it, because there is no God, Neil said sarcastically. If there was a God, that kind of insanity wouldn't happen. God would stop them. Or if God chose not to stop it due to some almighty plan of his, then he would surely punish them on the spot, make them hurt a little, uh, hurt as much as that little girl. We all have agency, Elder Hall insisted, and sometimes people use it unwisely. God doesn't stop people from exercising their free will. God doesn't stop them because he can't. God doesn't stop them because he doesn't exist, he sneered at them. You can't call God heaven, or you call God Heavenly Father, right? Yes, Elder Hall replied. Father, what kind of father, an all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, all-loving father, would allow his little girl to be brutalized before his eyes and not intervene? Would you? I know you think I'm a wolf, and I am, but I still wouldn't allow someone to do that to my daughter. I'm better than God, and I'm a scumbag. I, Elder Hall started to speak. Excuse me, Sam said politely, interrupting Elder Hall's words. There is no excuse, Neil bellowed. Either you produce God or you shut up. If God exists, give me a sign. Prove to me that God exists and I'll prove to you that he's a damn hateful God. Make God come stand right here and I'll scream in his face and I'll tell you that he's a failure as a God. A God who can't save his little girl and thousands like her. Who would even want to believe in such a being, let alone worship him? It's pathetic. I will give you no such sign, Sam replied calmly. Why not? Because you can't? That's why. If you were truly was of God, and uh, you truly were his representative, you would be able to give me a sign. None of the others could, and you can't. There is no God. You're right, I can't. But if you insist on a sign, then let God give you one. Well, isn't that convenient? Coward's way out. God doesn't exist, so here you are back at the original lie. Neil threw his hands in the air in a fake exasperation, a smile of triumph on his face. Sam was unmoved. I said that I personally can't give you a sign, 
but as God's mouthpiece, I can give you his sign. Sam heard his own words with curiosity and wondered what the sign would be. It would be whatever the Lord directed, and he waited with anticipation to hear it. This ought to be precious, Neil said, sarcastically crossing his legs and uh, lounging back in the sofa. What are you going to do, strike me blind? Ooh. Here is your sign. Your best friend raped and murdered that little girl. What? He screamed, bolting from his feet. His parents leaped to their feet at the same instant. For several minutes, pandemonium reigned while his parents shouted, not at the elders, but at their son. Demands, accusations, and denials punctuated the air. While they fought, Sam and Elder Hall sat in silence, barely hearing their words. Sam pondered why he had said such a thing. It had just come out. His heart had been aflame with the Holy Spirit, and he had been speaking the words that came to his heart. The words had come out of his mouth without him changing them in any way. At the instant he said them, the thought occurred to Sam that Neil's best friend was actually Satan, and that evil one had inspired the deed in someone unknown to Neil. However, the mere... The more Sam contemplated the words, the more he realized that they were literally true. Neil's hot denials proved their truth. If he had perceived it as a lie, he would have calmly called it as such, as he had all evening. Without a word from Sam, the argument came to a sudden stop. Neil took a seat. Let me tell you all something, he began smoothly, his voice like a knife. I am sure you read the papers just as I did. My parents undoubtedly told you that the little girl's father is my best friend. What you said was an incredibly cheap shot. He is more devastated by his daughter's death than you can imagine, and your accusing him is just another indication of how hollow your claims to truth are. What Neil did not know was that the missionaries were not allowed to read newspapers, and until Neil mentioned it, Sam did not even know there had been a little girl murdered. Besides, that's not a sign, Neil continued vigorously. A sign has to be irrefutable, undeniable. All you did was start an argument, not give me a sign. You'll have to do better than that. He pushed his long black hair from his face and flipped his head to keep it there. His eyes were filled with hatred and defiance. Once again, Sam felt the flow of words begin and steeled himself to speak them. It took courage to allow his voice to speak the words he chose not to edit. If you want another sign, you choose it. By your own words, you will know the truth. Oh, this ought to be fun, Neil said mockingly. Okay, let's see. Blindness? No, no. Too obvious. Disease? No, too common. Shot by a jealous husband? No, too unlikely to happen. I think I'll go for a body part, something small but important. Nothing crippling but big enough to be obvious. What do you think, Mr. Mormon Missionary? You call it. As you wish, Sam heard himself say. The part of your person you value most will be denied to you until you repent of your sins. As a further witness, the curse will begin the next time you curse God. Well, damn it, let's get the show on the road. Consider your phony God cursed. He shouted and stood up. I've had all of this foolishness I can stand. Besides, I have a doctor's appointment to get to. So saying, he nodded to his parents, strode to the door, and slammed it behind them. Sam and Elder Hall spent the next short while speaking with Neil's parents, who were mortified by what had just happened and apologized profusely. They had hoped their son would be as touched as they had been. The elder stayed until the spirit returned to the home. They made another appointment with, uh, and left them with a prayer. Late that night, an insistent knocking at their door awakened Sam and Kim. It was about three in the morning. Who is it? Sam called through the door. Brother and sister Van Halen, the voice came through the door. They scrambled to get their clothes on and let them into their small room. Sister Van Halen explained, I just received a call from my friend Virginia Whitehall. Something has happened to their son Neil, and they 
want you to come to the hospital. She didn't know how to con get in contact with you, so she called me. Can you come with us? It's a long drive. The elders got ready quickly and climbed into b the bishop's Mercedes. They drove for more than an hour before coming to a large hospital on the outskirts of the city. It loomed before them like a lost city in the dim light of the dawn. Neil's room was on the 12th floor and down a long hall. The hospital was surprisingly busy for so early in the morning. Of great interest was that no one attempted to stop them or ask them what they were doing, uh, where they were going. Thank you for coming, Mrs. Whitehall said as she pressed Sam's hand. She led him to the side of the bed. Neil's black hair looked stark against the sea of white sheets and pillows. His face, however, was nearly the color of the sheets. He was looking away toward the opposite wall as if ignoring them. After a few moments, however, he slowly turned to face toward them. He had been weeping. Most of the darkness was gone from his eyes. In its place was a total absence of light. It was still unnerving. How did you know? He asked Sam, his voice barely audible. Only Sam heard him clearly because he was closest to the bed. The others whispered his question behind Sam's back until all understood. No what, Neil? Sam asked, his voice soft but not patronizing. He felt the presence of the Holy Ghost and knew he had a further task to accomplish for the Lord. He also knew that Neil would not like what he had to say, even though Sam had no idea what it was. That my friend Charles was the murderer, he said, his voice almost tiny. I personally didn't know. I told you that the Lord I told you what the Lord wanted you to hear until this minute, only my faith told me that it was true. I was certain you'd say something like that, he said, and he turned his eyes toward the far wall. His voice was still filled with doubt, but it was no longer dripping with virtual. Neil spoke without looking at Sam. Charles and I have been lovers, Sam interjected, surprised at the words himself. A long pause followed, and Neil echoed the words, lovers. His parents gasped. We have been lovers for many years. His daughter lives with her mama and is the cutest thing. She was ten years old. I loved her, and Charles loved her, and I don't understand. There was another long pause. When she, when she died, Charles was devastated, and so was I. He wept and mourned and howled. He thrashed on himself so badly that I was afraid for him. I did not believe that he could or would do such a thing. A few minutes after the doctors gave me their bad news, Charles called me and told me the entire story. He's in jail now, awaiting sentencing. He'll probably be executed before the week is out. Bishop Van Halen explained softly when he saw Sam's puzzled look. In our country, a confession coupled with evidence to support it cancels the need for a trial. There is a sentencing hearing, and the criminal is put away. In this case, he will almost certainly be executed. Sam understood and nodded. He had heard that justice, or injustice as the case may be, was swift in this country. He had experienced some of it himself. When Neil turned his head back towards Sam, his eyes were pooled with tears. At first, Sam believed Neil was weeping for the loss of his lover, but when Neil spoke, Sam learned that something else was torturing his soul. I have cancer, Neil said, and his parents wept. When he regained control of his emotions, he continued, You'll recall that I had a doctor's appointment after our meeting yesterday. I came here for what I thought was a urinary tract infection. I have had several. It's one of the hazards of being, how can I say it delicately, attracted to men. The term gay had not yet been coined at that time. In that country, there was no polite term for homosexuals. The doctor ran a lot of tests and finally informed me that I have advanced stage of prostate cancer. He says it's probably the result of my deviant lifestyle. He laughed ruefully and paused to reflect. 
When he began again, his voice was filled with irony. If they don't operate, I will die within a few weeks. But if they do, I may live, but I will lose the use of my, my sexuality. He said, obviously struggling for words. Do you want to know the hardest part of all this? He asked, looking into Sam's eyes. Sam did not respond. It's knowing that you were right. You have given me a sign I cannot deny. God has given you a sign, Sam corrected him in a sad voice. Neil pondered Sam's words and finally said, God has given me a sign. Behind him, Sam heard Neil's mother begin weeping again. She mumbled something about it being too late. Sister Van Halen held her in her arms. You know, Neil continued, if it had just been Charles being guilty, I would have discounted it and rationalized that that you have guessed his guilt. But with that and this cancer taken away, the part of my body I value the most, it's beyond dispute. Checkmate, he said with finality. I'm sorry you've had to go through this, Sam said, not sure what else to say. In the long run, I know you can't use it to your advantage by now believing that there is a God. Oh yes, I'm convinced of that. The problem is, I am convinced he hates me. A few hours ago, I would have argued that I don't want to believe in a hateful God. Now I believe and I still think he hates me. It's an awful feeling. Why do you consider his treatment of you hateful, Sam asked. Since there is a God, there is also salvation and conversely, damnation. Sam smiled faintly. I think we would all have to agree that you were on a fast track to damnation a few hours ago. At least now you have the choice. Your eyes have been opened by this experience. Now when you choose, you can choose salvation. I know this experience is difficult for you, but it sounds like the work of a loving God to me, not a hateful one. I hope you're right, Elder Sam, Neil said quietly. I do hope you're right. I know God loves you because you keep the commandments and you're on a mission for him. It's easy to see why God would love you, but me... I've done everything wrong a person could do. I've broken every commandment except murder, and I'm not sure I didn't contribute to that one too. I've been in and out of jail a dozen times. If I were put in jail for every criminal act I've committed, I'd still be in jail. I have hated God and literally worshipped what you would call evil. I've reveled in it, rejoiced in it, and bathed my entire soul in it. I don't see how I can be forgiven. I can't imagine a God willing to forgive such a long list of sins. I am not just bad, I'm vile, he said with deep conviction. Your words, are the be be your words are the beginning of repentance. Whether you understand it or not, you just confessed your sins. It's a beginning. It's up to God, but I believe you can be forgiven. What do you have to lose by trying? That's certainly true. I have nothing to lose. Nothing. His voice trailed off into silence. Jim patted him on... Jim. Sam patted him on the shoulder and turned to leave. Elder? Neil called to him softly. Yes, Neil. Before you go, can you remove the sign? I recognize the evilness of my life. Is that, isn't that enough? Can you undo what you did? Can you release me from the sign? His voice was childlike, desperate, and pleading. I cannot, Sam said sadly, but without hesitation. It didn't originate with me. It's up to God to release you from it, not me. I simply can't do it. Neil sobbed uncontrollably as Sam backed away. It was as if his last hope for life had been yanked away from him. His mother rushed to comfort him. Even in the hall, Neil's voice wafted through the heavy door, the long, forlorn wail of an anguished soul. Sam heard it for what it was, the beginnings of a long, hard repentance. He didn't know if Neil would make it, but at least the process was begun. He climbed into the car. Sam suddenly realized that he was exhausted. He leaned back into the soft leather seat and slept deeply. Journal entry, June 22, 1975. After leaving Neil's hospital room, I was so exhausted that I slept all the way home. I had a vivid dream about Alma the Younger. It was almost as if I were there, watching him fight against the church, angry and vengeful. 
I watched in my dream as he was struck down and went through the an accelerated repentance process. I couldn't help but wonder if the dream was meant to parallel Neil's experience. I no longer view Neil as evil, un, as an un, as an evil, unredeemable soul. I can see that there is real power and the potential for goodness in him. He could be a great asset to the church if he would put much effort into serving God as he did into hating him. Elder Hall is a great blessing to me. He is the first companion I have truly loved. All the others I have appreciated, valued, or been friends with. Kim is like a brother, and we, when the time comes, I will be most sad to leave him. The Whitehalls delivered a message through the bishop's wife that they would appreciate not being visited by the missionaries until after Neil's operation in recovery. They promised to contact them when they were ready to resume their discussions. Sam took the note and carefully folded it and dated it. He put it in an envelope with all the other notes like it inside.